Hello, everybody. Welcome to your Rich Fulfilling Life podcast, where we help established and successful medical professionals and business owners live a rich, fulfilling life. Everything we do here is for you, and I'm extremely excited to share my stories with all of you in the hopes that you live as fulfilling of a life as possible. So let's have an honest conversation and get started with today's episode. Hello, everybody. This is your host, Saad Nadeem, and welcome to your rich, fulfilling life. Today is uh, episode number 10, um, Lessons Learned from Mastering the Market Cycle by Howard Marks, a book review and lessons learned. Um, I hope everyone's keeping safe. I hope everyone is staying home. And I hope by the time this recording uh, goes out, uh, COVID-19 is um, at the uh, tail end of what it was at the time I recorded this. So I, uh, um, I, I still wanted to record this episode because I feel that um, there's a lot, a lot of uncertainty out there in the market. There is a lot of um, uh, pessimism in, in, in the outside world, especially when it comes to economics and, and, and our investments as, as they relate to the stock market. And I read this book quite a while ago, and I revisited this book recently um, by Howard Marks. And if you know me by now, you definitely know that um, I really value Howard Marks's opinion, and I think he is a uh, a brilliant uh, addition um, to our industry, and his insights are uh, quite uh, welcoming um, in terms of what the what the normal and the and the average investor is looking for not sugar-coated not um, hidden behind uh, uh, indirect messages but straightforward and and really to the point so I thought that we can learn quite a lot from this book um, mastering the market cycle so what I want to do today is I want to um, share with you all um, some of the blurbs from this book, the lessons that we can learn from those uh, ideas and thoughts, and how we can hopefully take advantage of uh, such an opportunity that has been given to us in the world today. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Um, Mastering the Market Cycle by Howard Marks. Now, before I guess we dive into it, uh, we should probably start off with what is a cycle? Uh, we've, I'm sure we've all heard a business cycle or um, as an economy goes through a cycle. Uh, let's see what Howard Marks describes as a cycle. He says, the events in life of a cycle shouldn't be viewed merely as each being followed by the next, but much more importantly, as each causing the next. For example, as the phenomenon swings towards an extreme, this movement gives it energy, which it stores. Eventually, its increased weight makes it harder for the swing to continue further from the midpoint, and it reaches a maximum beyond which it can no longer proceed. Eventually, it stops moving in that direction, and once it does, gravity then pulls it back in the direction of the central tendency or midpoint with the energy it has amassed powering the swing back. And as the phenomenon in question moves from the extreme back toward the midpoint, the swing imparts momentum to, to it that causes it to overshoot the midpoint and keep moving toward the opposite extreme. So he basically describes it as um, 
the event of a life cycle shouldn't be viewed merely as each being followed by the next, but more, much, much more importantly, as each causing the next, right? So if we look at what has happened in the, in the world today, recently, is, is, the, is the COVID-19 virus that ultimately led to the market uh, being slashed by 30, 40% across the world. Now, it's very important to know that where you are in your life today, because one of the biggest things that is going to be taken away from this episode are your goals and where you are in your life today, right? For example, if you are a 30, 40 year old investor, your goals are very different than the 40, 50, 60 year old investor. Or if you're in your 70s or 80s, your goals are much different than those that are in their 50s, 60s and 70s. Right. So it all depends where your goal is. And and if you've listened to my other episodes, I've definitely referred to Howard saying this as well. And he mentions it again in this book as well, which is that even from a guy who manages, I think, over 120 billion dollars of assets, his number one criteria when he's looking to invest somebody's money, he says, what are your goals? And what are your circumstances? Do you need these? Do you need these funds in the next year, or are you looking to invest this money over a period of ten years, right? Because depending on your answers, your strategies and your investment options will change. So in this episode and in this book, he's really focusing on individuals who have at least 15 to 20 years of horizon ahead of them because that will ensure that the probability of you not losing any money over the long term are greatly reduced. So this book is more of a almost like a psycho psychological book rather than a straight um, technical book where do this, do this, do this, and here's how you would uh, set your portfolio. But it's very or vastly influenced by psychology. And that's really what the investing in the markets is, right? Because it's a quote he has in this book that says, on Wall Street today, news of lower interest rates sent the stock market up. But then the expectation that these rates would be inflationary sent the market down. Until the realization that lower rates might stimulate the sluggish economy pushed the market up before it ultimately went down on fears that an overheated economy would lead to a reimposition of higher interest rates. <laughs> and he's obviously over exaggerating things in this quote, but it, it's to drive home that point, right? Investing in the markets is strictly a psychological warfare. It is not really nitty gritty fundamentals when it comes down to it, right? A lot of it is obviously like value investing is still um, taken as the uh, the best way to manage your investments and the best way to manage um, your future when it comes to um, the stock market. But it's really about managing psychology. Because he gives a, um, a, I guess, a blurb in the book. Uh, there was a study done by a gentleman called John Brooks, uh, and his study was on market interpretation. And he writes, here's how investors react to events when they're feeling good about life, which usually means the market has been rising. And if you can put this context in probably, let's say maybe November of 2019 or October of 2019 when the markets were doing really well, you'll, I think you'll get the idea. He writes, strong data received in the markets today. Economy is strengthening, stocks rally. 
if there's weak data in the in the in the news, Fed likely to ease. He writes stocks rally again, or maybe the data is as expected as the market uh, uh, wanted. Stocks will rally based on low volatility. He gives another example of banks. Banks make four billion dollars, which means business conditions are favorable. Stocks rally. Or banks lose $4 billion. Bad news out of the way, stocks rally. Of course, the same behavior applies in the opposite direction. When psychology is negative and markets have been falling for a while, everything is capable of being interpreted negatively. Strong economic data is seen as likely to make the Fed withdraw stimulus by raising interest rates and weak data is taken to mean companies will have trouble meeting earning forecasts. In other words, and this is key, it's not the data or the events, it's your interpretation of the data or the events. And that fluctuates with swings and psychology. And that's literally what's happening in the world today. As of November and December of 2019, there were absolutely no news or any signs of the world going into a, re a recession or even a depression. They were earnings were strong, businesses were striving. Yes, it has been coming for a while, or we haven't had a, a market correction in so long. We're, we're definitely um, on pace to get one soon, but it wasn't anytime soon because as a matter of fact, earnings for businesses were actually growing, right? And they were actually, for the most part, quite positive. There was absolutely no news out there that um, that, th that we're actually gonna go through a recession. But all of a sudden COVID-19 hits and all of a sudden the market is slashed by about 30 to 40%. It's just investor psychology, right? The one example that I really like is, uh, say for something for example as toothpaste or your essentials like food and groceries and, um, and, and, and I guess just items that you need to maintain your standard of living. You're going to continue to buy toothpaste. You're going to continue to buy groceries. These companies are not all of a sudden going to go bankrupt, right? It's just the investor psychology which states that, yes, the Walmart stock should cr crash by 30 40%. Yes, the grocery stores should be slashed and nobody's going to buy groceries anymore. None of that has really any impact in, in terms of what's actually happening in the world today, right? It's just investor psychology. Like imagine going into buying a Mercedes-Benz uh, to a dealership for $100,000 and uh, every, he, he's feeling good and the, you love this car, it's exactly what you wanted, but today the price is $100,000. But imagine coming back uh, the next day and all of a sudden because of COVID-19 and all of these things have happened, the dealership now offers you the exact same car for let's say $60,000. Would you not buy it? I mean, holding the fact that you still have income and the economy um, is still doing good and, and like nothing has actually changed fundamentally. It's just this COVID-19 is actually uh, allowing people um, or is, is scaring people enough to the point where nobody actually wants to go buy it. So if you were actually in the market for a, a new car, this was actually a pretty good time to buy one, assuming that obviously you haven't lost your job and your business is still striving and all of those things, right? Which obviously is not maybe not the case during COVID-19 because most non-essential businesses are slowed down. But again, this is not that type of conversation. This conversation is actually money that you're setting aside for your future 10, 15, 20 years from now. Would it really matter? And the answer from what he says is, is, uh, is no, because it's just based on investor psychology. So the next um, blurb I actually have here is 
it's one of the the titles in one of his chapters is when to start buying right and so he starts off saying first what is a bottom because this is a question i'm actually getting quite uh, asked recently and i'll summarize what he says is um and even how a lot of these conversations are going with some of my clients is well i don't want to invest more money right now or i don't want to uh i want to cash out because i don't want to lose more money i i just don't i just don't want to be part of this falling knife right because nobody wants to lose money it's all fun and games when everybody's making money and the markets are going up and we're getting those 8, 9, 10, 15% rate of returns for on an annual basis. But nobody wants to be part of catch that falling knife when we're headed into what we're experiencing currently. So the question he asks is, um, when should one begin to buy? And he says that what I think they're really saying is we're scared in particular of buying before the decline has stopped and thus of looking bad. So we're going to wait until the bottom has been reached, that dust has settled and the uncertainty has been resolved. But hopefully by now I've made it abundantly clear that when the dust has settled and investors' nerves have steadied, the bargains will be gone. And for this reason at Oak Tree, which is the fund he manages, he says, there's absolutely no way to know when the bottom has been reached there is no neon sign that lights up. The bottom can be recognized only after it has been passed since it is defined as the day before the recovery begins. By definition, this can only be identified after the fact. Right? This is huge. Because there's a lot of conversations out there, oh, we might be experiencing a U-curve or a V-curve or a, or, a, or a Z-curve or whatever curve, right? But it all comes back to the financial life plan that we've created for you. If we know that we don't need to touch this money for X amount of years, it doesn't really matter if it's a U-curve or a V-curve or whatever curve. We want the opportunity to buy more investments as they're going down because they're on sale. On the other side, if we need this money over the next six months to 12 months, then we wouldn't have been part of that risky portfolio anyways. Nor would we want to go buy now. Because if it is a U-curve and the markets continue to drop, as I'm sure they will be, and, and as Howard Marks also states, and which I'll get to a bit later, that if they're gonna continue to drop and we need this money now, we shouldn't be in the markets to begin with before any of this even happened because then you're gambling, you're not really investing, right? So it's very important to know what is the goal based on the financial life plan that we've created and based on those facts, we know as a fact that we don't actually need this money for the next 10, 15, 20 years or so. And based on that, when the markets dip, it might be a good time to um, reposition our portfolios to take a bit more risk or um, stay steady but never to really cash out because as he states in his book that would be literally the cardinal sin of investing so the uh, um, one of the other um, uh, chapters he has in his book is is called safest time to buy and he writes during panics People spend 100% of the time making sure there can be no losses at just the time that they should be worrying instead about missing out on great opportunities. In times of extreme negativism, uh, negativism ex exaggerated risk aversion is likely to cause prices to already be as low as they can be, further losses to be highly unlikely, and thus the risk of loss to be minimal. 
Thus, the safest time to buy usually comes when everyone is convinced that there's no hope. And that is what we're experiencing today in the markets. There's so much pessimism out there in the world today that the markets are continuously dropping. Yes, you might have one day of uh, up 8%, but then it's definitely most likely going to be followed by a down day of 6%, 7%, or even 10 or 12%, literally killing all of those gains from the day before. Or it might be 10, 12% down today and literally going up 10, 12% the day after, right? Nobody actually knows what's going on. All we know as of right now, or at least as of this recording, S&P 500 Dow Jones is down about 20 to 25%. Right. And if it's long term money, this might be a good time to dip into the uh, equity portfolios a bit more. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily say and I'm not saying this um, to, to start taking a bit more risk. But what I am saying is that if this is long term money, this might be a good time to get a dip our feet in in, in some of the deep water. Right. But we have to be mindful and, and, and with a proper plan in place, which is what I'll get to a bit um, after uh, later in this podcast. The next thing I want to tackle here, which is a lesson learned from this book, is how to position a portfolio. Now, there's a very interesting quote that I really like by Charles uh, Kindleberger. He states that there is nothing as disturbing to one's well-being and judgment as to see a friend get rich. Envy, jealousy, our friends making money, why are we not making money? It's one of the biggest downfalls to our own wealth. Don't worry about other people. Don't worry about other people's uh, uh, circumstances. Don't worry about other uh, people's financial well-being. Worry about your own financial well-being and worry about only the decisions you have to make to ensure that you are going to be okay. This is a very good example. One of my clients, uh, she, uh, her husband passed away, but she is uh, receiving a pension. In this ter- market turmoil, she received a call from a, one of her girlfriends, and she was scared and, and telling her that, uh, like, I can't believe what's going on. I think I want to cash out. My investments are down 30 40%. Like, what should I do? And she is asking her for advice. Who's my client? That's not the right approach. And the reason I say that is because you are making her give you advice with probably less than half of the information of what's actually going on in your situation. Because my client's situation is much different than hers. And I know that as a fact because she told me about all of this after. Her husband's passed away. She has a fully paid pension that's coming in every single month. Based on the plan we've made, we have money set aside for her uh, immediate lifestyle expenses for at least the next three to five years because she wants to travel. So the market's going up and up and down her over a million dollar portfolio doesn't really mean anything to her because she has a pension coming in and the money that she's needed in the immediate future is already set aside in income portfolios that is only down one, two, three percent for the year while the entire world is crashing down at 30, 40 percent. Meanwhile, her friend's situation, she doesn't have a pension coming in. She doesn't have that security, that guaranteed uh, with the index pension that's coming into her. 
So her situation is much different than my client's situation. And if this is her situation and maybe if she is near retirement, maybe within a year or so, then her portfolio wouldn't have, shouldn't have been structured that way. But you know what happens? Because this happens not just to her, and it, it's happened many times to other people as well. One of my clients, a very lovely lady, um, she um, she told us once, like, hey, I was speaking to one of my friends and she was telling me how she got like 18% rate of return last year, but we only got like nine, why is that, right? And good question, but we don't know her friend's situation, neither does she, right? Because her friend is only gonna tell her, oh, look at this, I got 17%, 18% on my, on my portfolio, but we don't know her entire picture. We don't know which pool of those investments actually gets, got 17, 18%, right? Because in my client's situation, this is a different person I'm talking about, she doesn't have a pension. She has a pretty good lifestyle, good standard of living. She needs quite a lot of money to maintain her lifestyle. And based on those decisions, we decided a huge chunk of her portfolio would not be uh, as uh, as equity-based as, as it maybe it should be if she was maybe 10, 15 years younger. And the reason for that is because she doesn't need all of this risk. She is going to be more than fine living the rest of her life, maintaining a standard of living, going to travel the world, taking her families out, doing all the things she's ever wanted to do, spend time with her grandchildren. She's going to be do, able to do all of that without uh, actually having to um, worry about any of these other things that actually come out in, in the news. That is worth something to her. So yes, she didn't get those rate of returns of that 16, 17, but in her unique situation, she doesn't really need those because if she was positioned like that in today's market, while she's in retirement with no guaranteed pensions, with nothing actually coming in to her except the money that she generates from her investments, she would be down about 30, 40% right now, right? Or at least, 20, well, she would be at its peak, but probably at the time that I'm recording this, at least 20, 25%. So her $2 million is no longer 2 million. It's about 160, 170, 1.6, 1.7, right? So again, it's all about your unique situation. So I really wanted to uh, stress this fact. There's nothing as disturbing to one's well-being and judgment as to see a friend get rich uh, to start out this segment because I, I, I truly believe that. It's, um, it's unfortunate but it's just worry about yourself and make sure that you are gonna live a fulfilling life. The rest will take care of itself. So what he writes in is uh, how to position a portfolio is, I think it's helpful to take an organized approach to what I call the twin risks. What I'm talking about here is the fact that investors have to deal daily with two possible sources of error. The first is obvious, the risk of losing money. The second is a bit more subtle, the risk of missing opportunity. Investors can eliminate either one, but doing so will expose them entirely to the other. So most pe people balance the two. This is where your moderate 60%, 40% equity uh, income portfolios come in. So, but then he asks, what should an investor's normal stance be regarding the two risks? Evenly balanced or favoring one or the other? And he writes, the answer depends mostly on one's goals, circumstances, personality, and ability to withstand risk. I can't say that any better. When asked, how should you um, position your portfolio, evenly balanced or favoring one or the other, he says, the answer mostly depends on one's goals and circumstances. That is why 
uh, I wanted to really start this segment off with that quote with Charles because I, I think it, it holds so, it's such an invaluable lesson to be learned to not worry about other people, worry about you yourself, worry about only about the things that you can control, right? But he does stress that this is when you should know what you should be doing because he writes, um, try to travel into the future and look back. In 2023, do you think you're most likely uh, to say back in 2018, I wish I'd been more aggressive or back in 2018, I wish I'd been more defensive. And is there anything today about which you're likely to say in 2018, I missed a chance of a lifetime to buy XYZ? What you think you might say a few years down the road can help you figure out what you should do today. Right. And again, it's all about if um, you're you're not near retirement, you're 10, 15, 20 years away. And would you want to look back and say, man, I missed a lifetime opportunity. I should have been a bit more aggressive Then, if that's the case. Then maybe it is time to be a bit more equity based, maybe not 60, 40, maybe go to 70, 30 or 80, 20 or so. But it, based on that question is what we should decide in terms of how much risk you should actually uh, take in a portfolio. He says that switching between aggressive and defensive portfolios, in my view, is the greatest way to optimize the positioning of a portfolio at a given point in time is through deciding what balance it should strike between aggressiveness and defensiveness. And I believe the aggressiveness-defensiveness balance should be adjusted over time in response to changes in the state of the investment environment and where a number of elements stand in their cycles. The key word is calibrate. The amount you have invested, your allocation of capital among the various possibilities, and the riskiness of the things you own all should be calibrated along a continuum that runs from aggressive to defensive. When we're getting value cheap, we should be aggressive. When we're getting value expensive, we should pull back. And this, again, goes from nobody is going to be able to know when the bottom is. Nobody is going to be able to know when the peak of a market is. Nobody knows any of these things. So he says one of the best ways to manage uh, your portfolio, which is the exact way how we manage, because my investment philosophy is greatly taken from Buffett and Howard Marks, uh, which is to switch between aggressive and defensive portfolios is the greatest opportunity you're going to get. But you have to note that there's no such thing as market timing because nobody's going to be able to market timing. So for if somebody says, I want to cash out and we'll wait for the bottom and, and then we'll be called back in the market so we, we get none of the losses but only the gains, well, in most cases, what's going to happen is 99%, I would argue, that you're probably going to not only be down in the losses because you obviously made the decision to cash out after you already experienced losses, you're also going to miss out on the gains as well because you're just not going to be able to time it, right? He writes, and this is actually from 1993, so if you haven't had the chance, definitely go on uh, Oak Tree. I mean, I think if you just Google Oak Tree memos, uh, all of his memos should come up. They, he's been writing them since what? Since... Uh since 1990 so it's been about 30 years now uh, that he's been writing them and it's it's abundance of wisdom and knowledge in there so i highly recommend that you should go um read through them just to maybe uh grow your learning in, in terms of investment psychology and the markets but i i went back to this 1993 memo because i thought it was quite powerful so something that's about 27 years old now he wrote when it came to market timing, he says, people hold equities because they find prospective long-term equity returns attractive. The average annual return on equities from 1926 to 1987 was 9.44%. But if you had gone to cash and missed the best 50 of those 744 months, you would have missed all of the return. Every single 
uh, every all, all of the return. This tells me that the attempts at market timing are a source of risk, not protection. Because he also says, you know, I'm sure you've asked your advisor this and I'm sure he's, uh, to sound smart or something, he's prob probably said something along the lines, oh yeah, the markets are going to go up because, you know, so-and-so said so, or yeah, because no advisor is going to say the markets are going to go down. Like, you know, like why would anybody say that? That's never going to happen. Which I think is uh, not being honest with your clients, right? Um, because he says, few people revisit their forecasts. He says, we always read... I think the stock market is going to go up. We never read, I think the stock market is going to go up and eight out of my last 30 predictions were right. Or I think the stock market is going to go up and by the way, I said the same thing last year and I was wrong. Can you imagine deciding which baseball players to hire without knowing their batting averages? When do you ever see a market forecaster's track record? Because the only time you're going to hear about, oh yeah, this person made millions of dollars during that crash, but how much did he lose before that? And how much has he lost after that? Or you're never gonna hear about the losses. You're never gonna hear about the pains. You're never gonna hear about the bankruptcies. You're never gonna hear about any of that. What, what you are gonna hear about is because he's gonna be yelling on top of a building like King Kong is, hey, I made millions of dollars last year and this is how I did it and this is what it is, right? So don't fall into these traps, right? You cannot time the markets. You do not know what the future is going to hold. You do not know if the markets are going up or down. What you can possibly do is invest in sound businesses in, for the long term, not short term. We do not do day trading. We do not do uh, investing in penny stocks. We do not invest in any of that. We stick to reputable long-term businesses that have a, um, a, um, a record track record of cash flow and consistently growing their businesses properly. Right. And, and that's really what we're after. So what I wanted to give you guys quickly is because he also stresses this in the book as well, is 2008 and 2009, what happened in the financial crisis. And then I want to share his thoughts and what's happening today, because what happened in 08 or 09, this is not the same thing by any means, not even close to it. Right. But I just want to stress because there's still lessons to be learned there. He gave basically a graph of 2008 showing that Dow Jones was down 32% and in 2009, Dow Jones was up 23%, right? So he gives an example of 100 bucks. So if you had $100 at the beginning of 2008 and you uh, didn't do anything and you just kept everything as is, by the end of 2000, at the end of 2009, your $100 would have grown to about $103 if you uh, invested in the uh, S&P 500. Right, so $100 to 103 yes, the market went through ups and downs, but you didn't really lose much, and uh, two years later, you came out with a 3% rate of return. Not bad. But what he writes is that it matters enormously, however, what you did in between. Yes, holding on would have enabled you to recoup most or all of your losses and end up well with the results as described above. Above, But if you lost your nerve and sold at the trough, or if having bought with borrowed money, you received a margin call you couldn't meet and saw your position sold out from under you, you experienced a decline but not the recovery. And your net result in this non-event two-year period was disastrous. For this reason, it's important to note that exiting the market after decline and thus failing to participate in a cyclical rebound is truly the cardinal sin in investing. Experiencing a mark-to-market -market, mark loss in the downward phase of a cycle isn't fatal in and, in 
and of itself as long as you hold through the beneficial upward part as well. It's converting the downward fluctuation into a permanent loss by selling out at the bottom that's really terrible. Thus, understanding your cycles and having the emotional and financial wherewithal needed to live through them is an essential ingredient in investment success. So, don't cash out. If the money is for your long term, this is not the time to do that. If the money is for your short term and you were hopefully hoping, yeah, the markets have been going up for 10 years, I'm sure they're going to go up for this six month short period that I also needed to make money, not the thing to do right we have to have a proper financial life plan in place to ensure that every single one of our goals are going to be met and the goals that are immediate to near future should not be taking that risk and this experience is exactly what is the difference between gambling and investing you should only be taking the risk when you have enough time on your side and to ensure that you're have enough probability on your side to ensure that you're actually going to be able to come out of this without a loss. Because what he writes is, what can be learned from the financial crisis of 08? I'll give you this final lesson, his, uh, his, uh, his uh, lesson about how this is a bit different and I'll end off with my final thoughts. He writes, this is true of cycles in finance and absolutely true of financial crisis. As you'll see later, the global financial crisis of 07 and 08 occurred largely because of the issuance of a huge number of unsound subprime mortgages, and that took place in turn because of an excess of optimism, a shortage of risk aversion, and an overly generous capital market, which led to unsafe behavior surrounding subprime mortgages. Thus, the narrow-minded literalists would say, I'll definitely turn cautious the next time mortgage financing is made readily available to unqualified home buyers. But that aspect of the crisis need never recur for the lessons of the global financial crisis to be valuable. Rather, the themes that provided warning signals in every boom and bust are the general ones. That excessive optimism is a dangerous thing, that risk aversion is an essential ingredient for the market to be safe, and that overly generous capital markets ultimately lead to unwise financing and thus to danger for participants. In short, the details are unimportant and can be irrelevant, but the themes are essential, and they absolutely do tend to recur. Understanding that tendency and being able to spot the recurrences is one of the most important elements in dealing with cycles. What happened in 08 and 09 is not what's happening today in the markets. In 0809, they were over leveraged banks. They were selling of CDOs of subprime mortgages. There was a lot of greediness on Wall Street. And once all of that greediness was exposed, the world went through a recession and quite a bad one at that. With COVID-19, it is not that. Like I mentioned earlier in this podcast, everything's actually been going up. The earnings were good. There was no news or signs of a recession taking place anytime soon. Um, and, and businesses overall were just, uh, were just um, doing quite well. COVID-19 is a psychological thing where the markets are down. Everybody's pessimistic because we don't actually know what is going to happen. We don't know when the virus is going to start declining. We don't know when the new cases numbers are going to start going down. And we don't know when this whole thing is actually going to end. And because of those uncertainties, the market has taken a dip. 
if I haven't convinced you about Howard Marks uh, theories and, and, and his ideas and thought process in terms of how he invests uh, his investors money, uh, I will again encourage you to go to Oak Tree Capital and just Google Oak Tree Memos and read uh, his uh, memo from obviously this year called Which Way Now? And I'm not going to bore you with all because it's quite a long article. He, he he's a very good uh, a good writer, and this pay, uh, this uh, writer uh, this memo was about 11 pages. But I want to just stress on a couple of things here before I, I finish this off. He writes that, and he stresses actually that the economy will contract probably at a record rate. It is important to note that this is not the same thing as 08 financial crisis, and. What's happening with oil, with Saudi Arabia and, and Russia, is going to continue to force oil prices down. All of these things coming together, on top of the fact that government, uh, the U.S. just gave the, the uh, CARES Act of the $2 trillion economic stimulus package uh, to obviously help businesses and, 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 and workers. But what he's writing here is that, I imagine it can print enough checks to replace every American worker's lost wages and every business's lost revenues. In other words, it can stimulate the effect of the economy on incomes, but I have two questions. Is that okay and is it enough? He says the treasury can make up for people's lost wages, but people need the things wages buy. So replacing lost wages and revenues will not be enough for long. The economy has to produce the goods and services which I agree with, right? Like our, our Canadian government can give that $2,000 uh, of income to every uh, worker that has faced loss of income. But if that worker is not going out to buy or not producing the goods and services that that business has asked him to uh, uh, make, then our economy is actually not going anywhere. You're just giving that money into that person's hand, but that person's actually not spending that money. So you're kind of, yeah, you're, you're, um, you're delaying the inevitable, which is until this virus is not actually declining and completely eradicated, then it's actually not going to build a confidence in the general population to actually start doing business again, right? Because it's very important that I do sum up his final things because he has given a couple interviews recently where he says that you should be looking for buying opportunities now, but still be very cautious. And he writes the same thing again here in this letter. He wrote, you may or, not, you may or may not feel that there's still time to increase defensiveness ahead of potentially negative developments, but the most important thing is to be ready to respond to and take advantage of declines. Right. He does say that uh, I would say assets were priced fairly on Friday for the optimistic case, but didn't give enough scope for the possibility of worsening news. Thus, my reaction to all the above is to expect asset prices to decline. So he still feels and this was written on March 31st. So he still feels that the, the prices and the, and the stock market will continue to decline. Um, but he does say that. So say, for example, you got $100,000 and you know you want to invest $100,000 uh, for very easy math. What he's suggesting is that maybe not put the $100,000 now um, based on even the haircut that you received right now, which is quite good. But maybe what you want to do is take the $100,000 and um, spread it over maybe the next three to six months, maybe even to a year, right? And and as the market continues to dip, maybe buy a $20,000 or $25,000, then another $25,000, another $25,000, another $25,000. And what you're going to see experience is the effect of dollar cost averaging, 
right? Where it doesn't really matter if it goes up a bit or down a bit, but it, hopefully if it keeps declining a bit and you're going to keep buying at those low, lower rates rather than putting all your assets and all your cash at once. And then when the market comes back and we don't know when that's going to be, a year, two years, five years, nobody knows. Six months, next week, <laughs> right? Nobody knows. But when the markets come back and rebound, which they will, um, even though the market will come back to status quo, you would have made quite a decent profit in taking advantage of this dip. So the last thing and I want to stress again is and it's something I obviously mentioned again already earlier on in this episode is, but it all starts from your goal. It all starts from your goal, financial life plan. If this money is to be used sometime in the near future, then it's not worth the risk. Not when the markets are doing well and definitely not when the markets are going down. But what can happen is the fact that if this money is to be invested for 10, 15, 20 years from now, then this would be a good time to take advantage of these dips slowly, but be cautious, right? But all of this starts again from your financial life plan. And your financial life plan starts off with having an honest conversation. So if you are interested in having an honest conversation, and I've talked about this honest conversation quite a lot, so I don't wanna bore you once again with what an honest conversation is, but if you are interested in having an honest conversation with myself, if you are a established and successful medical professional or business owner, then you can go to www.richfulfillinglife.com, click on the honest conversation link, and book a time for us uh, to have a chat and seeing if we would be a good fit for each other. If you are interested in having an honest conversation with myself, I encourage you to go to my website www.richfulfillinglife.com and click on the honest conversations tab right at the very top to book a coffee or lunch with myself if you're in the Toronto area or a phone call if you're anywhere else in Canada. If you found this episode helpful or knowledgeable, please do share this episode with just one other person who you feel would want to live a rich, fulfilling life. And if you haven't already, please like and subscribe to the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Lastly, you can also check me out on social media. My Instagram is Rich Fulfilling Life. Facebook page is rich.fulfilling.life. Twitter is rich underscore full underscore life. Follow me or send me a direct message or comment. I love hearing from my listeners. So once again, my name is Saad Nadeem. Thank you for listening. Check back next week for a new episode. And until then, have a great week and look forward to having an honest conversation with you to help you live a rich, fulfilling life. Thank you.